Let's pray. Prepare our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Theodicus is the fancy Greek word for mother of God, which, if it isn't placed in the context of the season of Advent and Christmas, should call you and cause you to cry heresy, because the God we worship was neither begotten nor made and is from eternity to eternity. So he doesn't have to have a mother but because us humans needed to be saved. And God chose to do it in the most amazing and yet simplest ways. Jesus does have a mother, and her name is Mary. There is so much we do not know about the people in the Bible. There are things we can fill in by studying the culture and the customs and the expectations of the day. But when it comes to the actual person in the Bible, well, they remain mostly a mystery. Pastors and theologians often create docu-fiction persons, but if you read a different book or hear a different preacher, then there is a very different docu-fiction person, and you start to have to struggle with which one is real. If I went to the mall and asked 100 people how Mary got to Bethlehem, almost all of them would say, well, she rode a donkey. If I asked how they know that, they would say, well, it's in the Bible, right? A few weeks ago, my daughter sent me a picture of my youngest grandson who decided that Mary needed an upgrade. And so he put Mary in a nice John Deere tractor. Oh, that green, everybody knows it. <laughs> I love that kid. While I love the image of Mary in a John Deere, well, it's doubtful. But, you know, there's no mention of Mary in riding a donkey either. Is it possible? Sure. But we need to be careful about our Sunday school program interpretations becoming established biblical facts. It's why we need to go back and keep rereading the story, because we are a forgetful people. We don't know anything about Mary's parents, unless you accept the apocryphal book with the title, The Gospel of James, which says their names were Hoyakim and Anne. The story goes like this, Hoyakim and Anne couldn't have children, but in a last-minute plea deal in the temple, they, well... They promised God that their child would be fully dedicated to his service. And suddenly Anne was pregnant. An angel showed up and said, she is going to be like no other child that was ever born. And when Mary turned three, they took her to the temple, dropped her off, never saw her again. Their faith was rewarded by the church, proclaiming July 25th as St. Hoyakim and Anne Day. If the story sounds familiar, it should. It's identical to Hannah and Samuel, except Samuel was a boy and Mary, of course, is a girl. Is there anything wrong with accepting the story? Well, it depends. While we do not accept apocryphal books with the same level of authority that we do the established canon of Scripture, there is often much to learn about history and culture from these books. And every story has a beginning somewhere. And often there is some truth in those stories. So what do we know about Mary from the Bible? Well, she was young. She was engaged. Betrothed is the King James word to Joseph. She lived in Nazareth, a town in Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. It's on the other side of Samaria. She was bright and up-to-date on current political and religious trends based upon her very outspoken song that we're going to hear. She had a much older relative named Elizabeth who, unbeknownst to her, was six months pregnant. And that's pretty much what we know about Mary. Everything else is speculation or historical, cultural, docufiction guesses. What was Mary doing before Gabriel showed up, other than making plans for her wedding? Did she work? Who were her friends? What were her hobbies? We don't know. If we dive into the culture and history of the time, we can learn a lot. But 
because all of us, including Mary, are unique and unreproducible, there's still quite a bit of mystery there. Gabriel's enunciation was awkward and frightening at first. He tries to reassure her by saying, don't be afraid, Mary, because you have found favor with God. Have you ever had somebody interrupt you at the worst possible time? The clock is ticking, you have your list, and you're trying to get everything done before the clock strikes midnight and you turn into a pumpkin. Then the phone rings, or there's a ding from a text message, or FaceTime lights up. How do you decide whether to answer the call, respond to the text, or accept the FaceTime invite? I have no idea what Mary was doing that day. Was she in the middle of her chores? Was she praying? Was she dreaming about her wedding? Suddenly an angel shows up, and it's not just any angel, it's Gabriel who is always in the presence of God, which means that Gabriel brought Mary into the very presence of God as well. I've never seen an angel that I know of, but since the first words that almost every angel speaks is, do not be afraid, I'm guessing there is something about them that causes you to gasp and for your heart to skip a beat. Once Mary takes that breath and her heart calms down, Gabriel announces she's going to have a baby. I love her response. Look, I know how babies are made, and that's impossible for me. To which the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. So it's actually possible. If I'd been there, I would have asked the angel what it means to be overshadowed. But Mary just accepts the angel's words. Once she uh, processes what the angel said, if she is worrying... It's not about how she's going to get pregnant anymore. It's about all the other things that are going to change when she's pregnant. And maybe she was having a few, you know, how is this going to work thoughts. Gabriel goes on to say, the child will be called the Son of God. Interesting choice of words. This is one of several places in the text that give Mary an assurance that this is not a dream, a nightmare, or a fantasy. And by the way, I want you to notice something. Both angels, the one in the dream to Joseph and the one in person to Mary, both of them say, you're going to have a child and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means later on in one of those little hallmark moments when Mary and Joseph are talking about what they've experienced, they both said, yes, and the angel said, and then they both say, we're to name him Jesus at the same time. And they look and they go, how did you know? And the other one says, how did you know? And there's another confirmation. See, Gabriel promises at just the right time, tiny slivers of this mystery will be revealed so that Mary knows that she's not crazy. I love the words from Luke 2.19 where it says, Mary treasured all these things in her heart and she pondered them. I mean, what else could she do? Mary responds to the angel by saying, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. Again, interesting turn of phrase. Remember, when Luke wrote that, he wasn't there, wasn't even an apostle. Wasn't he, he was just a doctor, first mentioned in the book of Colossians, where it appears that he's one of St. Paul's sidekicks on a few mission trips. Luke makes it clear he had to talk to everybody, compile their story under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in order to write both his gospel and the book of Acts. Now, this is why such a turn of phrase, may it be, to, may it be done to me according to your word, is so powerful. Mary is surrendering to the will of God. I don't doubt she had a billion questions and a million doubts and concerns about how this would affect her engagement and her relationship with Joseph and what her family would think and what everybody else would think. And yet, may it be done to me according to your word. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste. That's the King James Version, which I think sounds a lot better than she hurried off. So why is Mary making haste? Well, two possibilities. First, she's excited. I mean, this is some pretty big deal. I mean, to be pregnant and be, you know, met by an angel. Secondly, 
Gabriel told her Elizabeth is pregnant. In fact, she's in her sixth month. Now, since their family, um, Mary probably would have known uh, that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth couldn't have children. I also need you to point out, it doesn't say that she was a cousin or an aunt or anything. It just says a relative. Now, for Elizabeth and Zechariah not to have children was a big deal in the culture at that time. So if Mary gets there and Elizabeth is pregnant, this is one of those slivers that gets revealed to help with the billion questions and the million doubts because it's almost as big a deal and a big a miracle as Mary getting pregnant. There's also a third possibility for her running to Elizabeth. She can hide her pregnancy for a little while, especially if she had morning sickness. But eventually, there was going to be no more hiding it, and she needs to figure this out. See, today, no one would even blink an eye. They would wait until she got out of earshot, and then the gossip would begin. Same thing back then, except if Joseph wanted, or the priest in the church wanted, they could have had Mary put to death, because it's obvious that she is unfaithful if the child isn't Joseph's. So Mary needs time to think, to put everything into perspective. Gabriel told Mary not to be afraid, but even if her engagement and marriage had gone off exactly the way it was supposed to, and one of those dream weddings, there is still, in that big of a change in life, things to be afraid of. Since there's no mention of Mary's parents, it's possible that they were dead. Or maybe she really did get just dropped off at the temple when she was three, and she doesn't have any actual family that she knows of. Mary, being young, is going to need support. She's engaged, which, by the way, in that culture different than our engagement. Back then, to be engaged was like 90% married. She's unexpectedly pregnant. The baby is not her fiancé's. And I'm not sure how many people would have understood the whole, the Holy Spirit overshadowed me thing. So she goes to someone she loves and who loves her unconditionally. And someone who's trying to figure out her own miracle. And given Elizabeth's advanced age, uh, she could probably use a younger set of hands to help out around the house. If you study angelology and read all the places in the Bible where they show up, you would tend to think that they just make a mess of things. I mean, when they say, don't be afraid, you think it's because life is about to get really, really complicated and messy and dangerous and unpredictable. But here's a very important secret. When angels show up, it means things were already complicated, messy, dangerous, and unpredictable. And the angel is actually here to fix things. It's going to get more complicated, messy, dangerous, and unpredictable before it gets better. But in the end, it actually will get better. So when the angel says, do not be afraid, that's a promise of reassurance that you can take a deep breath and throw your hands up in the air as the roller coaster dives straight down and everybody else is screaming because you know that it's all going to be okay. Remember what Romans said, Paul? Yeah, he says, all things work together for good. So Mary hastens to Elizabeth, and when they greet one another, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, who's going to grow up to be John the baptizer, he leaps at the sound of Mary's voice. And then this young lady reveals to us a lot about herself. This is her prayer, and I want you to listen both to the wisdom, but also the testiness of this. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. She ends with, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. But in between, he has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. That's a very interesting Christmas prayer. Mary accepts God's calls with all of their risks. She knows she's not alone. 
The angel promised her God was watching and overshadowing her, but she also had the comfort and the warmth of Zechariah and Elizabeth's home. And then there are all those slivers that reveal just a tiny bit of the mystery. Luke says she stays there about three months before returning home. By the way, doing the math, she leaves either right before or right after John the baptizer gets born. Mary makes tough decisions, determined to live into what God is calling her to. The Magnificat shows that she is thoughtful and educated and a little bit edgy. Her willingness to accept God's challenge reveals she's a woman of faith. Her journey to Zechariah and Elizabeth tells us that she values family and community. Her willingness to return home expresses her trust in God to protect her and care for her and her unborn child. She is the Theotokos, the mother of God, and yet she has compassion and love and faith. She doesn't have any superpowers, no unlimited bank account, no staff, no guards, no halo above her head with a blinking sign that says, I'm the mother of God, so you better be nice to me. Her statement of faith is her life, and she lives it in the hands of God. Well, Theodicus was a title given to Mary by the early church and is feminine and an adjective and is most often translated mother of God. The actual literal translation is God-bearer or one who bears God wherever God needs to be. Through baptism, we are God-bearers. It was Jesus who said, You are the light of the world, and go and make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you to the ends of the earth. The one thing about faith is it involves taking a risk over a perceived life of safety. It requires that we see this life for what it is, a gift of God. And yet, like all earthly gifts, it is one that's going to wear out, it could be taken away from us or lost. There is also a possibility it will be left behind because it's no longer thought of as useful or necessary. That's how so many people today view their life. But there is another life, another gift. This one is eternal. And it is in light of this gift, the eternal one, that we realize the risk is worth it. What the angel promised Mary is, the whole overshadowing thing, well, it applies to us as well. And God is always revealing tiny slivers of the mysteries all around us. We have been called to take Jesus wherever we go, introducing him to the world that we live in, how they react and what they decide. Well, that's not up to us. That's the part that we have to place into the hands of God. We have it in us to be Jesus to this world. We have it in us to bring gifts of love and healing and forgiveness and peace and grace to the world and to our community and to our family. We have it in us in us because he is in us no differently than he was in Mary for those nine months we aren't carrying Jesus around in a box or a Bible or a crucifix or a song the truth is Jesus is carrying us around even if it's our feet that are doing all the moving they are hard words to speak at least they should be hard if we're taking them seriously but there are also no more important words for us to speak Lord I am your servant May it be to me according to your word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.